Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. So our listeners will be glad to know that I tore Nora away from the television screen. She is no longer watching (laughs) Meghan Markle and the rest of the royals. I don't know how many royal. There's only one other royal person speaking to Oprah tonight, I think. I don't know. I don't care. (laughs) I'm definitely going to watch it, but I don't care right now. I'm only going to catch the highlights because if this is if I see the parts that are curated by other people, like my time will not be wasted. I just I need to be in on the pop culture references, so I have to I have to watch it. You know, <laughs> much like I had to watch <laughs> WandaVision, which you know I liked. I don't I don't think it was as good as everyone is saying that it is. I mean, I love Marvel, so I just feel like in the canon, it's not amazing, but also. I am really getting tired, just a little exhausted of the motif of the black superhero who's bulletproof. Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Oh my God, yeah, I've a seen thing? it. It is a thing. It's a thing. All the black superheroes bulletproof. And it's like, yeah, I see it. I see what you're doing. I get it. Okay. But also, also stop. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop, especially now. Please stop. I'm I don't want it anymore. Sorry, I should have probably said spoiler alert or something. I don't know. <laughs> I this is this is so meaningless to me because it's just like all I thought it was this like um historical look back at like that sh- that movie A Fish called Wanda and it was like trying to recreate it in a sitcom. What? N- no. <laughs> No, (laughs) I have literally no fucking idea what this thing is. (laughs) It's it's about the love between the characters, Wanda Maximoff and and Vision. Sorry, what? Really? What? What? There's two characters, Wanda and Vision, and then they fall in love. So Wanda Vision. Oh, my God. No, I really thought they were recreating um, a television sitcom. Okay. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) I mean, it was there was there is a sitcom motif and now we're getting into deep spoiler territory. So we're going to stop talking about it. But you're never going to watch it anyway. So no, definitely, definitely not. And you know what? I I actually I actually did a bit of research on the butter situation and found out that that Nanaimo bars are the new thing. Oh, that is so disgusting. Oh, my God. Who the fuck cares about Nanaimo bars? Mississauga bars. Also a bit interesting, but still disgusting. The, Who calls it Mississauga bars? They originally were, and then that got ignored, and then it just became Nanaimo. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, that was like the original name. Wow, you actually read about this. I didn't. I, I'm sorry. I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but but the, uh, the butter situation. So I have just been getting butter that doesn't have this oil in it, and so my butter's been normal, but everybody's getting like Gay Lee butter or President's Choice butter. It's like literally not getting soft when you leave it out. So, wait, so basically what you're saying is, (laughs) to all our listeners out there, is that you just have superior butter. (laughs) Yeah, fuck. Well, that and also I I feel kind of bad that that this does now all of a sudden feel like a national story. (laughs) What? I don't don't know. I I really felt emotional when I I found out that it's true that you, you just can't spread gay lee right now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to all the gaily users out there. Whatever. Do we have people to thank? Just <laughs> what stop. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> 
we always have people to thank. And uh, and to everybody who donated this past week and everyone else, sorry for all of these spoilers. Um, but at the very least, at least, you know, get lactansia butter. And it does does continue to get soft. And it's it's so good. It's so smooth. This is not an ad. We promise. <laughs> You know what? I reached out to Hostess on this whole chip situation to see if we can get a fucking sponsorship, and those motherfuckers didn't even reply. <laughs> Shame. Yeah. So, anyway. You should have reached out to Ruffles. Oh, maybe that... Well, are they not the same company? I don't... I don't know. <laughs> okay. You know what? So, fuck Hostess, Ruffles, Frito-Lay, that, them, and thank you, no fucks, to Claire, Jackie, Hallis, Dandy, and Imad. Thank you so much for your support. We really, really, really appreciate it. And to everybody who supports supports the show, we 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 couldn't do it. Well, we could do it without you, but um, it would we suck. Would, we would do it worse. <laughs> we would do it worse. <laughs> it would be more bad. Okay, <laughs> so it is March seventh. By the time people hear this, it's going to be March 9th of twenty twenty one, which means that. We have reached an important anniversary. That is right. It's the it's the one year anniversary since someone sat on my couch that wasn't someone that lived at my home. <laughs> <laughs> as I saw, I saw um a good a reel as they call them on Instagram, where someone uh, described it as it is the one year anniversary. Of when we shut down for two weeks. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, lovely. So here we are. What have we learned? What is there to say? Lots and lots. But before we get into it, I think there's just a couple things that we want to mention about other things that happened this week that we do think is really important for us to just take stock of and note. One involving the NDP. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. Nikki Ashton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Palestine. Rick Smith. <laughs> Rick Smith. Nora, what's what's going on? This past week has been not super good for the NDP. And if people have not been paying attention, so Nikki Ashton, who's an MP, an NDP MP, is um, hosting an event for a group called Progressive International. Uh, which was uniting a lot of different groups across the world. It was bottom line by Yanis Varoufakis from Greece. And Bernie Sanders was involved and Jeremy Corbyn's involved. And there is a whole bunch of people um, in the NDP involved in Canada. And uh, so Nikki announced that she's having this event with Jeremy. It's in a couple of weeks. So, you know, you can check it out if you'd like. It's pay what you can. And the money's going to the Progressive International. And <laughs> fucking... The, the head of the Broadbent Institute, which is like this NDP-adjacent think tank, Rick Smith, um, I get kind of put a bullet into Nikki Ashton's shoulder uh, over, um, over speaking with the vile anti-Semite Jeremy Corbyn. And Rick took a fucking excellent amount of shit for this shit position that he holds. And, you know, this is a position that he maintains. This is not necessarily a position from Broadbent, although the Institute really should fucking clarify that. And when the NDP was asked about this, because Rick made this um, post on, on, on Twitter, he got ratioed and journalists followed up with the party. The official line from the party was that Nikki did not ask permission to do this event with Jeremy Corbyn and that the NDP is going to be committed to fighting against anti-Semitism, which, of course, casts dispersions on Nikki Ashton for being anti-Semitic, for communicating with 
Jeremy Corbyn. I, I mean, my expectations of the NDP are not super high, but I was really surprised that the party walked right into this so willingly and so um, foolishly. Uh, and to make this about an MP not getting permission to talk to the former leader of the like the Labour Party in the UK, like, my God, he's not a fringe character. And it doesn't really bode well for how the NDP is going to deal with issues that I don't think are sticky, but that they may think are sticky, like Palestine. Yeah, I... I found this to be really disappointing um, as well. And I <laughs> I just, I mean, it's almost ridiculous. It's like we shouldn't um, have to be responding to this from what is meant to be the most progressive party that has a shot, I suppose. Like, I, um, like what is, you know, when, when you see something like that and you see the way the liberals respond to any sort of a person who has a reasonable critique of Israel um, or, and you see the way that the conservatives do, it's just like, what is, how, why are you exactly the same? <laughs> what is, what is the reason for you? If, if not to represent another point of view, if you are going to be exactly the same um, and uh, not only exactly the same, but fucking just atrocious uh, in your engagement of uh, subjugated communities worldwide. What? Why are you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just why are you? That's the end of the question. <laughs> just, you know, and it's it just yeah. it was just it just felt so exhausting to see. And I'm just like, man, you know, uh, um, and a, a fucking border crossing conversation about progressive politics is a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, why, why are we hating on yeah. this right now? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, NDP, who are your allies in UK, in the UK? Like, who are you? Like, what, <laughs> what's, what's going on? Yeah, it's, uh, I found, I found it really frustrating also and indicative of future goings on, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's especially concerning because of just how close the politics of settler state colonialism connect both countries, both Canada and Israel. I mean, of course, the UK differently <laughs> as, a, as the main colonizer uh, who managed to set a lot mm-hmm. of things into motion that we are dealing with still to this day. But the, that, that, that solidarity, if I could use that word, that connects Canada, the United States, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, like these, these settler colonial states have such similar issues. And of course, they manifest differently. There's different histories. There's different ways in which that colonialism has been imposed. But there's also a lot of similar ways, too. And, you know, people talk about Palestine and, and Israel being an, uh, Israel being an apartheid state, of course, a reference to South Africa. And South African apartheid, like, has some very, like, strong connections to how Canada has set up its apartheid regime, its colonial regime. And so, you know, you've got Nikki, who's a representative of, the, of a northern uh, riding. She's, you know, the representative of northern Manitoba. And having a conversation with, you know, the former head of the UK Labour Party, like, not a fringe guy by any stretch of the imagination. And it's on this issue that the NDP wants to make hay, like in in the same sp- like period of time where the BC NDP has just approved Site C Dam, like 
you cannot fucking suck and blow on reconciliation. You cannot suck and blow on colonization. And if the party is going to boil this hit job, which is what Rick Smith's tweet really was, on on Ashton down to, well, Corbin's anti-Semitic. And so we didn't give Nikki permission to speak to him is like just it's just so cowardly. Like, God, I thought that you had like courage as a fucking tagline. <laughs> like what happened to that? You know, like, well, I mean, you know. Fine. It's a tagline. I mean, yeah, we spoke last week a little bit about how the NDP could be modeling uh, the, the type of progressive politic that we that people really need right now where they have power. And as you say, you know, they've in, in, in the in, in B.C. have decided to um, approve the Site C Dam in Alberta have you know are like pro oil in 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 a violently colonial way <laughs> and so mm, uh, yeah. i don't know what other way you can be pro pro oil by the way so you know like it it does you know it it is following through with the way that their politic has been um in these provinces and that's really concerning because then it like the question is what's the point what, what do you what what's the point <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we expect uh you know we we i mean the ndp was built uh, to be another option of uh of for progressive politics labor friendly politics for um you know politics that were going to be different and it just feels really really fucking like you know just another liberal party right now and it's makes me sad yeah we don't need that we need that as much as we need a fucking third pandemic <laughs> i i just i just imagine that there might be a second one or something like that or yeah, i was just like yeah. third <laughs> <Where are we? laughs> you know yeah um yeah. it's i want to shout out to the response and the work that independent jewish voices have done on this because they responded mm-hmm. very quickly and igv is a really great organization of progressive Jewish activists in Canada, and they've got a lot of connections to uh, organizations like Jewish Voices for Peace in the United States. And um, and so kudos to them. Um, but fuck every NDP MP who didn't say anything about this or who even worse, like fucking retweeted Rick Smith, like Charlie Angus, like guy, you also represented Northern Riding. Like what the fuck? We see you. Anyway, anyway, anyways, anyway. But one year. It's been a year. It has been a year. And we are all getting vaccinated. It's going to be so good. Right? Right? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, you, as um, as a proto-American, can I call you that? No. Um, uh, <laughs> you'll be vaccinated, I think, probably before me. I think so. Although I went to book my vaccination online today and uh, after about an hour and a half of the website malfunctioning, I was like, I'm going to try again tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> technically eligible as a an education worker. I'm a I'm a research assistant at, at UCLA, uh, which means I'm an education worker. And right now, education workers are eligible to get vaccinated. So... Uh, I should be getting vaccinated within the week or two. Oh, 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 oh my God. I mean, it's just been incredible. Which is close to when you are, right? You're, you're probably going to get vaccinated in a week or two. No? 
Uh, I am uh, very much at the bottom of the list, which is fine. I don't mind that. I mean, there haven't there hasn't been a mass like it's just been amazing to see. Um, you know, I've got friends who are American, um, at, like whose parents are in different parts of the United States, and hearing just how quickly this is moving. And of course, there's problems with the American rollout. It's not equitable. A lot of people are being left behind. But I mean. <laughs> Compared to Canada, it's like, well, everyone here is being left behind. So, you know, we can we can say that the United States has managed to do this very well. I I don't imagine I will be mm-hmm. I will be vaccinated until um, the summer, if not September. That's kind of what I'm expecting for myself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to look back at the year that we've had, and you know, there's, there's been so much attention on the vaccine um, issues on. Canada hoarding vaccines or purchasing vaccines from COVAX, which is a, a global consortium that's supposed to provide vaccines for low-income countries, but Canada is fucking right in there. And um, <laughs> and get really cynical, you know, focus on the people from back home who are, like, talking about how, oh, like, I'm not ever going to put that in my body, like, as if, like, they haven't fucking, like, done totally really horrible stuff to their body that's, like, way worse than a vaccine. Anyway... Um, but I do think it's really important for us to take stock about how amazing the technology is that we have gotten so like made such a massive medical advance in the last year. It's it's something that's really bringing me a lot of optimism, mm-hmm. like the the capacity that we have to create these mR, mRNA vaccines that will have massive implications on other illnesses like MS or like malaria. And it's like, fuck, like. That is great. That's such good. That is such a good part. Probably the only good part of the, of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating to take stock at what is possible when there is the will to do it. Because, you know, there's there's this is obviously um, such a significant and urgent public health crisis of our time and then it it makes me wonder you know if 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 all of that sort of energy had been put uh behind uh the hiv pandemic you know like you know like how quickly could we have gotten to a situation where we had prep you know like how quickly could it have been had everyone gotten together and valued the lives of the people who are being impacted the most and said, we have to take care of this right now. How quickly could it have happened? You know? Um, and I, I think I read recently that um, it's going to have uh, some, the, the development of this, of the vaccine is also going to have some implications for malaria too. Um, mm, yeah. And, Again, that's another question. It's like, wow, you know, like malaria, like a, a perennial problem. Like, oh man, if we had just had the will all this time and had focused on these things and it just, it just, you know, as, as much as I'm obviously very, very happy and inspired about it, it just, it also puts into perspective uh, what happens when, uh, you know, the people whose lives uh, are being, um, harmed, interrupted, ended by a particular public health crisis. Uh, when those lives don't matter, and when those lives aren't valued, um, you know, we we just don't we don't put that type of the type of resources that we need behind them, and we allow people uh, to have their lives harmed, interrupted, ended for years and years, uh, even though 
we may have the capacity. It may be there. But but anyway, yes, it is. It is very, very good. And um, very, very inspiring to see um, these changes. And I just, I want more for our society. You know, I just want more. Well, it's the exact same thing uh, looking at something like the CERB, right? Like giving people money, a fast cash injection to survive was something that would have been completely impossible to imagine in 2019. And under the, the cover of the pandemic, the government, you know, gave individual people a lot of money. Now, the CERB, of course, had a ton of problems with it. They've also handed uh, an incredible amount of money uh, to corporations, both th- through the wage subsidy, a direct subsidy of, of tens of billions of dollars to corporations, but also CERB um, is, is also an indirect transfer to corporations because of how expensive cell phone bills are and rents are and transit is and food is. But you know, we, we, we've been able to not just on the medical front, uh, but also on the economic front, see just how possible some of like the things that people have been demanding for so long are. And, you know, this past week, I was on a panel with Sarah Jama from the Disability Justice Network of Ontario. And she was talking about how like, yeah, like a universal sum would be great if like, you know, people getting disability allowances ever had enough money to be not in poverty. <laughs> Right? Like yeah. the most basic thing, like maybe we shouldn't give people literally the bare minimum to survive. And, you know, I, I really think that at one year in this pandemic, it really does require all progressive people to be thinking about these issues and thinking about what has been made possible because of the the crisis that we're in that we've always been told has been impossible and mm-hmm. and, and has it ever actually been impossible like mm-hmm. and, you know I think obviously no none of this stuff has actually been impossible no and and it never ever has I mean um, another comparison I saw made by a colleague online was the ways that uh, certain urban centers and um, I don't know if these if this was happening in urban centers in Canada, uh, but certain urban centers were creating little structures around patios for restaurants so that people could, you know, safely still go out and eat and right. little structures, um, you know, ridiculous structures, but structures nonetheless in classrooms so that children could uh, safely interact in the classroom. It was, it's ridiculous for teachers. It's, I'm not at all saying that these things are good solutions, but, but, you know, you think about how quickly people put those things in play, even in, you know, you know, New York apparently had these structures on the street and it's cold outside. It's like (laughs) you had little structures that were warm outside so that people could eat. Wow. Why do we have an unhoused problem (laughs) at all? You did that? You did that so quickly? You mean we could have all this time? We always could have if only we valued the people. Wow. You know, there's so many things that uh, I think the the pandemic has exposed that we can do and that can work and that can work well. And it's also exposed just like what fucking pieces of shit we are too, (laughs) you know, like just God, the, 
The, the fact that mm-hmm. Toronto yeah. is taking Khalil Searight uh, to, to court to try to stop him from making these tiny shelters uh, for unhoused people is uh, just awful. And another big failure uh, that has become very clear over the year is how shit our media is right now. <laughs> oh, my God. Man, how shit our media is. It's just... I, you know, I'm still blown away by the fact that uh, Nora Loretto, (laughs) you know, um, you know, uh, journalist shop of one uh, is doing all of this, (laughs) this, this tracking work that uh, should be being done by multiple news outlets. But, um, but, you know, you were the only person doing it for so long and uh, probably still um, the one person doing it with as complete data as you have. And uh, yeah, what? That's so stunning <laughs> to um, me. I am the only person doing, um, doing it in the way that I'm doing it. So there's three groups of people collecting this data. There's the National Institute of Aging, which is just collating what they can get from public health units. Mine is different because I'm, I'm actually adding media reports and family information and, and information from uh, the residences themselves. There's also a group of Concordia journalism students that are tr- uh, they have a map. So you can look at a map and, and, and see some of this data, but you can't really export it. And it's really hard to go from place to place, right? Like, I mean, it's a it's like one of these geolocalized kind of places. So, yeah, I'm the only, only one person doing it. And fuck, even today I read, you know, in the Globe and Mail, oh, someone someone misstated the number of people that have died in residential care in this country. Oh, OK. By, oh, 20 percent more. Oh it's just God. like, yeah, the statistics just don't matter. And, um, and it, you know, as someone that has watched the pandemic so closely, uh, it is really shocking how much journalists – uh, have, you know, there's been this push and pull, like journalists have had to do incredible feats from their rooms, really, like a lot of them are working from home, and a lot of them are not able to do the kind of coverage that they're used to doing. Uh, while at the same time, you've just got management, like just uh, like fucking decimating, decimating newsrooms, right? Like, I'm not even sure if we've talked about this on this show, but Bell uh, laid off more than 300 people. Yeah. They were getting rid of all of their sports shows to replace them with fucking comedian shows or some fucking god awful idea. And they not only did they receive uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from the wage subsidy, I think something like 175 million or, or maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but they also finished the year with billion dollars, billion, billions of dollars in profits, $2.6 billion net in profits, which is more than the total operating budget of the fucking CBC. So here's you've got Bell that's just basically stealing money from people so that they can go online and do whatever the fuck. And uh, at the same time decimating the the journalism that they that they do fund while you know you've got this like completely contorted debate about oh we need to have paywalls it's paywalls that are going to save us it's like no you just need to fucking steal the profits of bell and fucking rogers and tell us that'll do it take their profits and put it into journalism boom done like that literal literal solving the problem right there and all of the shareholders who don't get their money can go to fucking hell but you know, that requires, um, what's the word? Um, I think I said it already on this show. Uh, oh, yeah. Courage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many different ways that the media failed us in this last year. I mean, even in a year where the media in Canada was going through a bit of a racial reckoning. people. Oh, yeah. Um, Remember that moment? <laughs> 
I do recall the moment. <laughs> I do recall the moment that, you know, all of the discussion that um, was sparked about who is making the decisions about what is news, what is newsworthy, who is uh, worth um, having on, what sorts of ideas do. Uh, are we going to gatekeep and what sorts of ideas are we going to allow to be told and what the racial and anti-black implications and anti-indigenous implications are behind those decisions. And even though we had that reckoning, um, they still failed. (laughs) Just, you know, the, the discussions about, and we didn't talk about this on the show. I think you you tweeted it at me, and then I forgot to to respond to you about it, and then we never spoke about it again. So I'm just bringing it up now, Nora. But like the, the conversation about um, how uh, you know black people are uh, disproportionately uh, more likely to be impacted by COVID nineteen. There's ways that that could have been reported. There's so many different ways to talk about that. And one of the ways that slipped through on the CBC was this discussion with former president at the University of Toronto, David Naylor, um, talking about, well, maybe black people are just genetically more, <laughs> you know, well, he, he, he made the comment that he made was like, it'll be interesting to see if this is about social factors or about um, uh, a genetic disposition by black people. And uh, the, I don't know, it just sounded a little eugenicist to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, there was no critique of that yeah. uh, in in the article. It was just dropped there as though it's a reasonable uh, way to think about a public health issue. So that's one. And then the other big Another big uh, uh, racial failing in how we discuss COVID-19 was how the South Asian community was discussed. Um, The South Asian community, I think, is just behind black communities in terms of uh, disproportionate uh, impact. And uh, in the news, was it was often referred to as uh, cultural misunderstandings of, you know, how people are to live together and how they're not meant mm-hmm. to um, continue seeing one another or uh, the parties that they were uh, refusing to stop having. Um, and not a, an understanding of, let's just actually take a look at where all the transmissions are happening. Oh, in workplaces, oh, a lot of these factories are in places where there are high concentrations of South Asian people. Oh, it must be cultural. <laughs> like, what? No, no, it's the employers. Like, and <laughs> how could you not see through that? How could you not see through that? It's just, it's just all so obvious and probably obvious to, to, to certain identities of people too, you know? And unfortunately, as we know, those people aren't deciding what mm. the news is. And so when we had the, the racial reckoning, uh, as it were, I mean, what did it change? I'm not sure. And, you know, a year later, I still feel as though uh, we're, we're not where we need to be. And that's not to say that uh, the people who are working behind the scenes, all the, the journalists of color, the black journalists, the indigenous journalists who have been making, taking big risks and making big leaps uh, to forced conversations on on the other side of this um, haven't been successful. It's not to say that at all, because they I think they have done a lot to move the needle. Um, I just want to see more uh, on uh, on the end uh, of, uh, you know, it reaching our news outlets. I want to see more of that. 
Well, it goes back to the reality that these are structural issues and that representation is, we've said this on the show before, representation is like step two of like 100 steps. And it alone uh, is often um, put forward from managers or from owners as being the solution to the problem of racist journalism in this country. And it's like, (laughs) that's not the solution. That is one of the steps towards getting towards the solution. And it puts an incredible amount of pressure on those journalists to be the ones that come up with the solution to their own oppression, working under often impossible conditions. So that's, I think, yeah, really important to state. Um, I'm not sure, Sandy, if you if you know why they quoted David Naylor, like just random guy, professor, former president of the University of Toronto. But this motherfucker is the co-chair of Canada's COVID immunity task force. And he made those comments to CBC in the fall. I think it was in late September. And so can you imagine that in September where the the impact on on racialized communities, especially black, indigenous and South South Asian communities was was obvious, was clear by any incomplete data measure that you wanted to take. It was absolutely clear. And this this fucking guy tells the CBC that uh, maybe it's a genetic issue that black people are dying more from covid. Like, if that's not, like, such an example of the of the power of systemic racism in this country, like, you know, they know that is that is that is such a, a major example. And, and I found this article months later as I was doing research. I was like, what the fuck? No one challenged him on this. No one was like, uh, David, uh, your racism is uh, is just leaking uh, through your dye job of your hair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it really boggles the mind and um and and it's not just it's not just like how covid disproportionately impacted communities that is a big story that's a really important story and and even saying disproportionately impacted like tends to have a white white frame to it so it's like here's how it affected white people and then here's how it affected everyone else but like even if they had done that more consistently that would have been better but there was also this underlying uh, acute rise in racism in two different forms that like only got covered uh, either when a report came out or when an incident happened or when racists did something. And so the first was the rise in anti-Asian racism. And nowhere mm-hmm. is as anyone scrutinized the role of journalists in 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 that. Um, in that phenomenon, in in the early days of COVID, absolutely linking China to COVID-19 as if the overwhelming majority of our cases didn't come from the United States, didn't come from uh, the UK or France or Austria or Puerto Rico, where Canadians were getting cruises from, right? Not like they were in Puerto Rico, but they're like at the ports to leave on the cruise ships. That's where COVID fucking came from. But the But the media's ability to absolutely turn this into an issue of China um, and then wrapped up to nationalism with, you know, the two Michaels and, and Meng Wanzhou and all this kind of shit with Huawei. Like that has been criminal. And there has been mm-hmm. hate crimes, a, a 787% rise in hate crimes in, in, in British Columbia, a rise in reported hate crimes in Ottawa from 2% from two reported hate crimes to 15 reported hate crimes. And of course, of course, these are reported like people don't report most hate crimes because they are, you know, usually like not going to be taken seriously by the cops. And and so that has never been kind of discussed. And then the other issue, of course, is the rise of the far right 
in the cloak of the anti-mask movement and how rarely journalists have connected anti-masks with fascists and and why that's such a that's such a fucking explosive combination. Yeah, and I I would love to hear what's going on in newsrooms about that. So if if you're a journalist who listens to us and um want to drop us a line about it, let us know because yeah. I mean it's so obvious that one of the you know the big failings of um, this last year is how um, the white supremacist organizing has been so successful and they've been using they've been using this anti-mask facade to Mm -hmm. build a massive base like they're having these rallies that are like quote unquote anti-mask but they are white supremacist rallies It's, uh, you know, like what was it in Edmonton last week or two weeks ago that there was like a tiki torch rally or was that in Calgary that was like obviously, very obviously, um, uh, you know, uh, calling back to what happened in Charlottesville. And uh, I I read something somewhere, um, I can't remember which article, where um, uh, someone was quoted uh, as saying, well, tiki torches aren't like a white supremacist symbol. Like, where, like show me where that is. It's oh. like, what? <laughs> it's like, is that the level of engagement we're going to have on this issue? That that can't be our level of engagement. We, I think if, I mean, I hope that this year has taught us that we need to discuss the reality of what things are and not pretend that things aren't happening like any old centrist liberal would like, please let's not do that. That's ridiculous. And it serves no one. We have to look these things right in the eye. We are having these rallies are happening in Canada weekly across the country and they're growing. I, you know, like um, I'm, I'm not really sure why we haven't been having the discussion as what it is that it's Mm -hmm. white supremacist organizing in Canada. And so what does that turn into when we're all vaccinated? I mean, that might be a long time for Canada. I know, I know, but at some point, at some point um, things are going to shift and people won't necessarily need to be wearing masks all the time anymore. And then what? It's all just going to go away. Is that what we think is going to happen? We think this is all really about masks. <laughs> it's kind of funny that you weren't sure if this Tiki Torch rally happened in Calgary or in Edmonton. Um, I find it funny for two reasons. One, of course, is that we all know the word name of Charlottesville and Charlottesville became an issue because journalists focused on it. Of course, the death of Heather Heyer managed to launch it into the national consciousness. But we know that Charlottesville had tiki torches because that's how it was covered. People understood that it was important to explain the symbolism behind these things. Um, And it's also kind of funny because they've happened in both cities. (laughs) They've happened in both Calgary and Edmonton. And, um, you know, last week, member of Legislative Assembly Janice Irwin, she's an NDP member, had her office vandalized by... Um, by fascists, which is 
you know, intimidation, it's fucked up. Uh, the Alberta NDP condemned it um, by saying that, that you can only be either anti-fa or pro-fa, which was, of course, too radical for them. So then they deleted the, the tweet right after to a lot of people calling them out. Mm. Um, but yeah, like in, in my city, um, the whole downtown today was full of fucking these anti-mask pieces of shit. And it was probably their biggest rally yet. Um, there's no c- connection being made. I think this is the real failure for journalism. In in Quebec, there's um there's a in Quebec City there's a a town that's not far from here that's got a lot of white supremacist organizing in it and has also had a lot of really major outbreaks within the school system. And I am dying to know if there's a link between those two things. If there's a link between uh, because we know that the white supremacists uh, have been organizing in the anti-mask world and all of our rallies here, people drop downtown. I mean, this is, these are not people that live downtown. The, the streets just swell with cars of people coming down to the National Assembly. And it's like, what is the connection between outbreaks in workplaces mm-hmm. or outbreaks in schools and the people who are running these rallies? Like, is any journalist looking at that? Because, you know, you can say that, oh, it's so impossible to know where outbreaks are happening or what's really like, oh, this, 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 this virus is so sneaky or, oh, my God, these variants or whatever. But when you have an organized group of people who are actively refusing to participate in public health orders, it doesn't mean that none of them have had COVID. It, it actually means that they become even more likely spreaders of COVID if they do get it. And so, yeah, there's so many creative ways that these stories could have been told. And coming up at that at that one year mark, I mean, I'm not surprised that it hasn't like journalism has not risen to the occasion. I mean, there have been some journalists who have risen to the occasion, but by and large, that's not the case. It's, you know, when you're trying to make sense of what is an extremely foggy and extremely confusing situation like this pandemic, now is when you need to have those incisive Clear. I mean, fuck. You're listening to us, dear li- listeners. I mean, you know, you know what this what this coverage could sound like. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's not good enough. It can't just be Sandy and Nora. You <laughs> were fucking commentators. You know, like, like fuck, 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 fuck. And 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 if we don't learn these lessons, um, that, that as you say, the the vaccine is not going to get rid of um racism. <laughs> like, oh, I wish, right? <laughs> fuck. That would be great. Yeah, well, fuck, except these are the guys that won't even take the vaccine, so fuck. Yeah, and you know, uh, a couple more things to note. Like, one year later, I really wish, I really, really wish that we had been able to have a better conversation about mental health. I, you know, like, the the mental health conversation has basically been, wow, isolation is really bad for mental health. When are we going to stop this? (laughs) Which is just so... Not good enough because uh, in, in, it, it can't always we can't always be talking in absolutes like this. I mean, there was always the option. There was always the option that our representatives who are in power could have put their minds towards what does it look like to prioritize leisure in a way? And I've mentioned this on the podcast before, like what could they have created Um Uh, as measures for people to connect uh, from the public sphere. You know, we have all of these tools available to us in the year 2021 or in the year 2020. um, Like what could have been created as a public measure of health for mental health for people to connect with one another? Maybe it would have been 
um, creative ways to to connect over the internet, maybe creative ways to connect in person that were safe, uh, that that the that the cities that we live in, that the communities that we live in, um, that the provinces that we live in, that the, that the friggin' countries that we live in were actually focused on making. I believe that we could have come up with things that would have made sense. And we just, we kind of threw up our hands and said, this is just bad for mental health. This needs to end soon. Um, like mental health is the economy. You know, this is bad for the economy. This needs to end soon. It's, it's not the same. Like there has to be a way for us uh, to take care of both our physical health and wellness and our mental health and wellness. And I don't think that those two things are like impossible in a pandemic. It just, uh, you know, we need to set up the the priorities to make that sort of creation possible. And we just don't. We don't care about uh, leisure and wellness time in our society right now. And that has become so clear to me through this this experience. Like, I, I don't think I ever really thought about it this way before, but it's become so clear to me through this experience that we 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 really orient our society and this this i know obviously but we really orient our society around our purpose being to work and our purpose being to to generate money and of course that destroys people's mental health because we have to have a purpose beyond that we must have purposes beyond that and when you know when this pandemic arises and that's the only thing that people care about is just work and not leisure Man, how many people have been harmed by that? So many people. So many people. But I do want to end on like a good note. I don't know if you have anything to say on that before I do. <laughs> well, other than it's not even just that, but fuck, like everybody that needs a doctor right now, mental health services, like they can't get it. Like it's just it's even more basic than having a mental shift. It's like if journalists could stop covering this as, oh, mental health is bad. Oh, teen mental health is bad. Oh, elderly mental health is bad. It's like, fuck off with this and actually start giving us the stats of how bad it is and whose fault it is and what their addresses are and how do we start convincing politicians to take this seriously. So not super uplifting. I'll leave maybe that to you. But also why? Like The why is like obvious. And I don't know why we're so afraid to talk about it. Like we, we noticed this in the student movement when we worked there, you know, like people being like student mental health so bad. And we'd be like, yeah, tuition fees are extremely high. And they're like, hmm, I wonder what's <laughs> causing the badness of this of the mental health. We're like, well, students are working more than ever and are in bigger debt than they've ever been in and still have to perform in school amongst peers who don't have to do that. So maybe, you know, like, tuition wow like financial stressors i just don't know what it is mental health so bad let's get some dogs you know like it's just it's we got to be able to talk about the why and in this you know in a in a, a pandemic uh, context it's like yes part of the why is obviously there's a pandemic and obviously people that we are connected to and we know and we love um have been impacted gravely by the pandemic of course of course of course and then yes because people are isolated but also because, you know, they're isolated from their work, like the, the one thing that they used to do consistently all the time, they're cut off from people. And all that the society has done has made sure that you can still work. You know, like we've done mm -hmm. everything possible to make sure that people can still work. 
as many people as possible can still work from home. You know, like that's what we've done. We haven't done anything else. You know, all the other things that make humans like and make life worth living. Like, you know, like it's just uh, that makes me sad. But something that I love that I think has been fantastic over the year uh, has been um, the WandaVision. Vi- Stop it. Stop it. No. I mean, I liked it, but it wasn't as great as everybody said it was. <laughs> Is uh, the how much more publicly politicized medicine is uh, all of yes. the doctors, all of the nurses who have stood up and said, you know what? Fuck this. and Fuck you. Like we are actually going to talk about the politics of medicine, the politics of care and the politics behind um, what has actually, you know, for the last for as long as I can remember anyway, has been um, a really kind of it's the politics have been sanitized out of health discussions, public health discussions, which, you know, uh, is ridiculous and wrong. And I think that that has been massively shifted this year. And so shout out to all the doctors and nurses who really made that happen. Yeah, uh, there's it, it, to to see some of these doctors be surprised that for political reasons they might face political repercussions has been uh, heartwarming and also cute. It's like, oh, well, welcome to my life, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also to the folks who who don't have a voice uh, because they've been systemically shut out of the of, of media. So I'm thinking specifically of PSWs, you know, personal support cr- workers mm-hmm. or proposés bénéficiaires, orderlies, nurses' aides, like all of these cleaners, all of the staff that make these places run, um, you know, food services, laundry services, they have been so silenced by, um, by, 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 by journalists who will often say, oh, it's just impossible to get them to talk because they're so precarious and it's too dangerous for them. And, you know, that's true to some extent. I don't think that justifies the complete shutout, but it's definitely a factor. And um, and so, yeah, so so doctors especially who have the political, social, economic capital to be able to speak out, nurses too as well to some extent, um, you have to do that. You have to you have to bring forward the complaints of the people who you work with, understanding that oftentimes for many different reasons uh, they they can't. And if you do know people who are looking to or willing to speak out, like help them help them navigate that world of of being able to call out the conditions and under which they work, so that we really can hear directly from the the people who have actually been on the front lines of this pandemic. So you know, it's been a year. It's been a weird year. It might be another weird year. Let's hope it's less than a year. But I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. You know, I'm getting my vaccine soon, but they've they're also reopening the UCLA library, and I'm just like, why are you doing that? Stop, stop, stop. Oh yeah, yeah. It just seems like uh, all the things that the doctors say um, that do, not all of the wisdom gets followed. So we'll see where we're, we're at in a year from now. But what a year it has been. Yes. And Sandy and Nora listeners, thank you for coming along for the ride. <laughs> There's so much ride left. <laughs> There's so much ride left. Hopefully not that much. Oh. No, no. I mean, of, San- of Sandy and Nora, not the, not the pandemic. Oh, oh yeah. We'll be riding for a while. <laughs> <laughs>